The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we are talking to Cody Forrell, structural design engineer at Sunflower Electric Power Corporation, who recently passed the PE exam. We will be talking to him about transmission line design and what it is like working as a structural engineer at an electrical utility. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. And I'm your co-host, Kara Green. Now, let's jump into our conversation of the week with Cody. Before we go on here, I would like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Menard USA. Do you have projects where you are faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, platforms, and more. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardusa.com. That's www.menardusa.com. Cody, first, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Glad to be here. So in your own words, could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do on a day-to-day basis and what it's like working at an electrical utility? I'm originally from Alva, Oklahoma. I attended Fort Hayes State University before transferring to Oklahoma State University. I received my bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Oklahoma State in 2019. When I started college, I didn't know what I wanted to do career-wise. I changed majors from math to physics, and that's when I realized I had a lot of engineering prerequisites already completed. At that point, I transferred to Oklahoma State and completed my engineering curriculum. I began my career with Sunflower Electric Power Corporation. I came up through their internship program. After graduation, I started working at Sunflower full-time, and I've worked there as a structural design engineer for almost three years. Due to the pandemic and an ongoing office remodel, I've actually spent less than one year in the office out of almost three years as a full-time employee. I was fortunate to develop a knowledge base when working in the office as an intern and for those first 10 months when I started full-time, and that's allowed me to be effective and advance my career while working from home. Before my internship, I had little to no knowledge of what working at an electric utility entailed. Sunflower Electric Power Corporation is a wholesale generation and transmission utility 
operated on the cooperative business model. That means we're member-owned and not-for-profit. We're currently owned and governed by seven distribution utilities who serve their thousands of members in central and western Kansas. Being at an electric utility, I work with a variety of different engineers, most who have an electrical background. I work with distribution engineers, planning engineers, electrical transmission engineers, as well as other structural engineers. I also work with transmission linemen and other transmission field technicians. One of the unique challenges that comes with working at an electric utility is the existing aging infrastructure. A lot of my time is spent on maintenance projects. We do a lot of structure and equipment replacements. We do a lot of retrofits where a lot of the design elements and variables are already in place. We work with consultants as well as do our own designs and each day can bring unique requests and new challenges that definitely keeps me on my toes. Of course, I think everyone, a structural engineer in the civil engineering community is aware of the new infrastructure bill that came out. But I don't recall ASCE, if it's on transmission conductivity, I feel like power is definitely on the report card. You know, in the structural engineering field, people usually think it's buildings, but like a testament to you, there's a lot of other paths that you can take that's related to structural engineering. One thing we share in common as civil engineers is taking the PE exam and congrats on passing that. That's what I heard. Uh, How was that experience for you like, Cody? Uh, Late in 2020, the state of Kansas started allowing engineers to take the PE exam before years of engineering experience was completed. So I found out about this early in 2021 and immediately started researching different options. I learned that the CBT exam option was opening for all civil engineers starting in 2022. That was appealing to me because I took the FE exam on the computer. So I was familiar with the processes of testing at a testing center and searching through reference material on the same screen that I was taking the test on. So I then applied to take the test late in 2021 and took the test in April of 22. And since it was on the computer, I had my results in nine days and thankfully I passed. But since I did take the test early, I will have to wait for a little over a year before I can apply for my PE license. It's still a big relief knowing that the PE exam is behind me now, though. Yeah, all you have to do is just wait for the experience then, right? And then you'll get license. Correct. You just have to document and turn that experience in. Yeah, I worked with the guy. He ended up taking the PE exam after me because I took mine fairly early and then waited for the experience. And I was telling him the challenges remembering and defining all of your projects. So keeping a list of that is really handy. Yes. So Cody, talk to us more about your involvement in transmission line design. Sounds like you've been with your company in work outside of your internship for about three years. So what do you do for the transmission line design and the kind of transmission line structure configurations you work with? I'm familiar with a little bit of substation design, but not so much transmission lines. To start off, transmission lines move electric power from point A to point B. They can connect a network of substations and generating facilities. It's very complex system. Sometimes it's compared to the interstate system. So I predominantly work with three-phase alternating current transmission lines where there are three conductors and either one or two static wires in most cases. The number of static wires is determined by the structure's configuration. In my territory, structures are 
most commonly made of wood or steel. Concrete, ductile iron, laminated wood structures are also available. There's also different components to the transmission structures that can be fiberglass or other materials, really all kinds of materials. So there are three main types of structures, tangent structures, angle structures, and dead-end structures. Tangent structures are directly in line with the structures ahead and behind them. They make up the majority of the transmission line. Angled structures are used to change directions. They usually require some sort of support. They can be supported by a drilled pier foundation or guy wires. Guy wires support the structure by connecting to an anchor in the ground. And dead-end structures are usually placed at the beginning and the end of the transmission line. They can also be placed periodically in between. They're sometimes referred to as failure containment structures since they are designed to stop significant cascading failure events. There can be single pole or monopole structures, lattice steel structures, and frame structures. A common frame structure is an H-frame where it has two vertical poles connected with the horizontal cross arm, creating an H-shape. The cross arm extends beyond each pole and supports all three conductors with insulators and hardware. Above the conductors, each pole has a static wire that's directly attached to it. There are a bunch of different bracing options. So one H-frame may look different than the next. You know, there can be almost an infinite number of different structure configurations. The Structural Engineering Institute is actually hosting the Electrical Transmission and Substation Structures Conference in October of 2022. And I'm excited. Uh, I'll be attending that conference for the first time this year and maybe see some of those different structure types that I haven't seen before. You mentioned an H-frame. I think that's what I am most familiar with in like the large transmission line structures because I'm originally from Alabama and that was, you would see them, they would do like a huge clearing between like certain forests and across the interstates and it would be those large H-frames. There's a lot of things that determine the type of design for a transmission structure. And I'm assuming placement is a big consideration, but what are some of the factors that need to be considered while designing a transmission system? Because I mean, power generation, I'm also from Houston, Texas, where we just had a huge power outage about two years ago due to an ice storm. What are the things that need to be considered for the design? The electrical transmission engineers like to joke that Transmission lines are just sticks and wires. There's obviously a lot more that goes into it than that. That's where the structural engineer comes in. The structures have to be strong enough to support the conductors and static wires. The conductors and static wires have their own strength properties as well. I mostly work with ACSR conductor, which stands for aluminum conductor, steel reinforced. So the aluminum strands on the outside carry the electrical current and the steel core strands help with strength. And uh, the more current the conductor carries, the more it heats up. This leads to more sag in the conductor. The National Electric Safety Code, or NESC, has limits on conductor and static wire tensions. Tensions and the, the sags that go with those tensions are a big part of design and analysis. Dead-end structures, they support the tension loads on the transmission line. And the NESC also lists minimum load and strength requirements. The RUS, which is the Rural Utility Service, and ASCE have design guides for both transmission lines and substations. There are three load directions, longitudinal loads, which run parallel with the transmission line, 
transverse loads are perpendicular to the transmission line. And for tangent structures, those loads are mostly going to come from the force of the wind being applied to the conductor and the structure. And the vertical loads include the self-weight of the conductor plus any ice load. So all of those things have to be supported by the structure. Wind and weight spans are the transmission line equivalent to tributary area. A single tangent structure is theoretically responsible for the wind applied to the conductor for half of the span behind it and half of the span ahead of it. And there are a lot of different load cases that need to be evaluated. Uh, the NESC has load districts. You have to consider wind, ice, wind with ice, construction loads, dead-end cases. There's a lot more than that, but that's just to name a few. PLS CAD and PLS Pole are programs used to model and analyze transmission lines. LIDAR is actually used and imported into PLS CAD program to get an accurate model. And from there, you can do all your analysis and strength checks. And the models really allow us to respond quickly to storm events so the linemen can get the transmission line back in service if there is an outage. And Kansas is in Tornado Alley, so there's always a chance for storm damage. You know, it's uh, specialty structures, and it's complicated enough where <laughs> it seems like it has its own code book and standards for structural requirements for these transmission lines and even its own um, ASCE subgroup that you were mentioning previously before, right? Yeah, and there's even different manuals of practice that ASCE has that deal with different components of transmission lines. There's some that are specific to the loading, some are specific to designing steel poles, some are specific to substation structures. So yeah, it's very specific and unique. Yeah, I've also heard of phrases such as phase-to-phase and phase-to-ground clearances. Could you explain a little bit about what that is? Because I've heard those thrown around in the industry when we're working with different disciplines, but I know a lot of our viewers may not be too familiar with that. Could you explain that for a little bit? The three-phase transmission line, you have your phase-to-phase clearance, and that is the clearance that has to be maintained between any two conductors on a circuit. These clearance values are given by the NESC, and they're dependent on the operating voltage of the transmission line. The phase-to-phase clearance is really what determines the phase spacing, which then translates to the framing dimensions of the structure. Phase-to-ground clearance is the clearance from a conductor to anything besides another conductor, to put it simply. This could be the ground, this could be a building, or it could be any part of the structure that the conductor is attached to. The length of the insulator itself is the clearance. The clearance is the base of the insulator where it's attached to the structure, to the tip of the insulator where it connects to the conductor. And the clearances really dictate what a transmission line will look like. Most notably, the clearance to the ground that dictates the height of the transmission line. Having the right span length, you know, Kara, you mentioned structure placement. Having the right span length from structure to structure is important. The longer spans will have more sag and more blowout when the wind is applied. So in general, the higher the voltage, the bigger the transmission line. The higher voltage lines will be taller and have larger phase spacing. And that all stems off of the clearance requirements. As I mentioned before, I've seen 
whenever I think of transmissions lines, I know they come in multiple orientations, as you've mentioned before, they can just be residential, probably likely not on what you work on, but I do recall some of the larger ones and it explains that, especially that phase to ground clearance, why there was such a huge clearing in the trees. I think that's why it's so noticeable, the transmission lines, because I know there's a lot of designs that come about to make them less intrusive. I think as a designer, you want to minimize their impact on the surrounding areas. But I do recall like the big gaps in tree lines due to the transmission lines. So one thing you mentioned a little bit earlier was some of the different loading types that you have to take into account as a design engineer when designing these transmission lines. Matt was mentioning, you know, there's a couple of buzzwords that really float around the industry, especially when talking about transmission and the design. And one of them is aeolian vibration and how it can affect transmission lines. So can you explain to our listeners a little bit more about what aeolian vibration is and how it affects maybe your design method or the lines in general? Aeolian vibration is a high frequency, low amplitude oscillation that happens. It's small, but it's fast. It's caused by a steady wind blowing perpendicular to the wire. So areas with unimpeded winds or flat, open, you know, the wind can just blow on the conductor. And when the conductors have high tensions, those are the areas that are most susceptible to experiencing aeolian vibration. Galloping is another conductor movement phenomenon, if you want to call it that. Galloping's the opposite where it's a low frequency, high amplitude oscillation. So it's slow, but it's big. And that occurs when freezing rain or sleet is combined with a steady crosswind. The moisture will freeze on the conductor in the shape of an airfoil. The wind then lifts the conductor similar to how it would lift an airplane wing and the conductor begins to gallop. So anytime your transmission line conductor starts to act like a jump rope, that's not good. Matt, you may know about this, and Cody, you may know about it as well. I remember that bridge. It was called Galloping Gertie, and that was what happened. It was like it, due to the wind, and it caused the bridge to oscillate in like these large type waves. Have y'all ever seen that video? I've seen that video where it doesn't look like a bridge that's behind them, but it's actually a bridge that's... Yeah, and it's like this man, and it's his car is there, and there's like a random dog on the bridge before it failed. I wonder if that's where the name came from. Yeah, it's like a galloping. I think they call that in wind design, that effect. There's sometimes for special high rises as well that occurs. I haven't dealt too much about that. But what do you guys do to to combat that, Cody, or prevent it? Yeah, so both aeolian vibration and galloping can introduce all sorts of loads on your structures that you don't want. They can be really destructive. Like you mentioned, that, that bridge failing in the grand fashion that it did, that's not good. So some of the mitigation techniques, you can place dampers on the wire to help with aeolian vibration. These typically come in the form of a weight that's strategically placed within a span to disrupt a range of vibration frequencies. And twisted pair conductor can resist aeolian vibration and galloping. It's another way to prevent that. Twisted pair conductor just takes two individual conductors and twists them together, hence the name. And by doing that, the conductor doesn't allow the ice to form in a nice airfoil shape. The trick with those 
to conductor movements is to design to prevent them, not to design your structures to withstand them. So we talked about the substructures and the conductors. What about the role of substation foundations or foundations in general? What's their part in terms of the design process? Substation foundations can consist of drilled piers, slabs on grade, or either spread footings as well. It typically depends on the piece of equipment that it's supporting. Transformers and circuit breakers typically sit on a slab. Tubular aluminum bus and some other substation equipment has to be elevated to meet phase-to-ground clearance requirements. So they typically sit on a steel stand, which can be tubular or wide flange. And those steel stands are supported by drilled pier foundations and anchor bolts most of the time. On the transmission line, you'll see a lot of drilled pier foundations. They're usually there to support angled structures or dead-end structures that have a large moment. And foundations have a moment-based design. On your bigger transmission lines, you can have some really massive drilled pier foundations. And uh, sometimes those are cool to see be constructed. So you were mentioning that you work with the substation foundations. One of the projects I worked on, I did the, I forget the proper name of what the test is called. It's like the geoelectric conductivity of the earth below the foundation for the substation structure. So one question I had is from what I recall, my supervisor at the time saying was that the foundation provides like the resistance against the substation, the electrical, you know, current running through the substation to prevent. And it was a wild ride because we were out there testing it at the time. But one thing she told me, she was like, if the soil is very conductive, you can be standing in the surrounding areas of a substation and be electrocuted through the ground, depending on the type of soils that are underneath and that it was the foundation that provide the damper to make the surrounding areas safe. So is that something you take into account in your designs or is that just me recalling incorrectly? That's very electrical based. I know, you know, substations have ground grids that prevent or designed to prevent that electrocution of just standing there in the soil. No, I'm not familiar with the role the foundation plays in that. It was a long time ago. And I remember thinking about the foundation because it was like a gravel bed and then you had your foundation underneath and she was like, yeah, if they don't construct or provide enough of a damper against the electrical conductivity, it can be transferred into the soils. Oh, I'd put that on the electrical engineer. <laughs> I don't want to take responsibility for that. Some sort of insulation, but it always, every time I drive by a substation, I'm like, oh, it always makes you a little bit nervous to stand anywhere inside the fence. The ground grid is designed by the electrical engineers and the fellow structural engineers were always cautious about going in substations or touching equipment. You go in first, the electrical engineer, it's your design. Yep. Cody, you know, to end off here, do you have any final advice that maybe our listeners could take into account if they're looking at starting a career in transmission line design as a structural engineer for a utility company or maybe something for younger engineers could take away if they're just starting out in their career? So I got into the electric utility industry through an internship. That's always great advice for young engineers. Explore internship options, figure out what you like and don't like. Uh, fortunately for me, I that was my first internship and I ended up liking it. 
Same goes in the electric utility industry as any other structural engineering industry. Just be prepared and be organized. Be prepared in life and be prepared for meetings and just be prepared so you can take advantage of opportunities that come up. I like the quote, preparation prevents poor performance. So I think practice that and you'll find yourself in some good situations. Great advice, Cody. And I wanted to just thank you again for coming on and talking about this industry because for me at least, and I'm sure for our listeners too, we see these structures every day in our lives and talking to someone that actually works in it and see the intricacies of it and going into the detail and the engineering that goes into it. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. And thanks for talking about it. Yeah, I hope I provided some insight to the listeners today. Thank you again, Cody. Yeah, thank you both for hosting. And I'd like to thank Anthony for reaching out and Angelique for setting everything up. Hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 78, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.